And I invite you to turn with me once again to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9 this morning. We come to a very important passage. We come to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And we come to Jesus' own, uh, I can put it this way, messianic mission statement. Uh, This is a very important passage. And so let's give our attention to it this morning. But before we do, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for its light and power and message And we ask that today, by the Spirit's ministry among us, that, Lord, you would shine the light of your word upon us, uh, that we would experience the power of your word in our lives and be transformed by it, and that each of us here would embrace its message and live by it. Help us to understand who Jesus Christ is is and what he has done and what that means for each of our lives. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Well, as I said, this passage is foundational. You all know what a foundation is. It's something that everything else rests upon. And these verses and what Jesus says in these verses are really the foundation of everything else in the Gospel of Luke. And for that matter, everything else in the Bible. And we learn here that Christianity is a cross-centered faith. And if you want to really understand Jesus, then you must understand Jesus' cross. One of my professors in seminary put it this way. No cross, no Christianity, no Christians, no Christ. That without the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is no Christianity. There is no savior of sinners. There is no hope. There is no joy. There is no life. There is no peace with God. And so as Christians, we understand that the cross of Jesus Christ is at the center of our faith and it's at the center of our worship. And as we'll see in the next passage, it is at the center of our lives. As a church, we exist to 
lift high the cross of Jesus Christ. And as we worship, we worship by way of the cross. And as we live out the Christian life, we are called to live a a cross-centered life. And so the cross of our Lord is at the heart of Christianity. It's at the heart of the ministry of this church, church. And it's at the heart of the Christian life. And so I say it again, and we, we need to let this sink in and think about it today, that without the cross, there is no Christianity, there is no Christian, and there is no Christ. This is why Paul would say that he has uh, resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. The, the Apostle Paul understood that as Christians, we, we, never get, we never get past the cross. We never stop needing to hear the message of Jesus Christ crucified again and again and again in our lives. He understood it forms the center of our faith because it is the basis of our hope. And so the cross is not just a, a quaint symbol of Christianity. No, the the cross, it is the heart of the gospel. And without it, we are without hope, without salvation, without joy, without peace with God. And so today, as we begin looking at this passage, the first thing I want us to see and think about together is the necessity of the cross. You see how Jesus puts it there. He, He must suffer and die And three days later be raised. Jesus was the Christ and it was necessary for him to suffer, die and rise again in order to do the work of the Christ. It was necessary because it was the Father's plan from eternity. But more than that, it was necessary because there is no other way for sinners to be saved and reconciled to God, but through the cross of Christ. You know, it's popular today to say or to believe that there are are many pathways up the mountain, right? There are many ways to God. It's it's popular to think that we can can atone for our own sin by doing good or doing religious things. But, dear friends, Christianity makes absolutely no sense whatsoever if there are other pathways to God. If we could make our own way to God, if we could atone for our own sin, why, why would the Father deliver up his one and only Son to the shame of the cross? Why, why would the Heavenly Father send the Son of His love to be humiliated and crucified and cursed upon a cross if there were other ways to God? This was the only way. And so we see the necessity of the cross. There's no other way for salvation but through the cross of Christ. There was no other way for unholy sinners to be reconciled to a holy and sinless God. And this is why Jesus began to teach his disciples shocking news. He, he, he begins to teach them that he, 
He must, do you hear the necessity? He must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and three days later be raised. Jesus wants his disciples and he he wants us to to understand and to know why he came to earth. He came to earth to die on a cross for the sins of his people. That is, after all, why his name is Jesus. You remember in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus is his name, and my friends, Jesus means Savior. And so you see, Jesus did not come to, if I can put it this way, he did not come to give us a good set of morals. He he did not come to to be your personal life coach. He didn't come to to be your, your cheerleader. He came to serve And he served by giving his life as a ransom for many, by laying down his life on the cross for the salvation of sinners. And so, because it was the only way for sinners to be saved, and because God ordained it, it was a matter of necessity. I want you to think about what that says about us for a moment, dear friends. If the, if the Son of Man had to, had to suffer and die on a cross, then what does that say about me and what does that say about you? It says that our situation was so, so precarious, so, so dangerous, so needy that it required the Son of God to be crucified upon a tree. And so the necessity of the cross, it says to us that that our situation was so serious, so desperate, that the only way to secure our eternal salvation was for the Son of God to die. You want to know how serious your sin is? Do you want to know how seriously God takes your sin? And And we look at the cross... We look to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was no accident. He went there deliberately. He went with his face toward Jerusalem, knowing full well what lied ahead of him. Why? To be pierced for our transgressions and and crushed for our iniquities. To, To bear in his own body our sins and to drink to the very last drop. The cup of God's wrath. And so you, you, can't, you can't look at the cross and pretend that there are other ways to God. You, you, can't, you can't look at the cross of Christ and pretend that our sin is something you know we can slip under the rug. We can't look at the cross and and pretend that our sin is something that we can atone for because it required the Son of God to come and to suffer and to die and be cursed. It is the only way to God. And my friends, if you have not gone to Christ who, who bore the wrath of God for the sins of his people, then remember Remember the words of our Lord Jesus himself in John's gospel. If anyone does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God 
remains on him. And so we see here there is no other way to be forgiven. There is no other way to know and experience the joy of salvation. And there is no other way to God for you and me but through the cross of Christ. And so we see in this passage the necessity of the cross. And then the second thing I want us to think about for a moment is the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. Now, you know, for us living on on this side of Calvary, the words of Jesus about suffering and dying may not may not sound all that shocking but for the disciples hearing this for the first time this was this was almost impossible for them to take in and to to contemplate and to understand fully after all Jesus had had just asked them about his identity the crowds were saying well, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead, or perhaps Elijah, or some other great prophet of old. And then Jesus, what's he do? He takes the question and he turns it on his disciples. But who do you say that I am? And of course, it's Peter. (laughs) Peter replies, and he gets it right. You are the Christ of God. Now, you understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name. You know, it's not, uh, it's not like Jared Havener. Christ is a title. Jesus is the Christ. Christ being the Greek word for the Hebrew word for the Messiah, which literally means the anointed one. And when we look to our Old Testaments, we see prophets and priests and kings being anointed, being set apart for service to the Lord. And so prophets, priests, and kings were anointed to lead lead God's people in service to the Lord. But if we pay close attention in in the Old Testament, the Lord gives clues all along the way that one day he is going to send the the greatest prophet, uh, the, the highest priest, and the mightiest king of all. And so, for example, in Deuteronomy 18, I think it's verse 18, Uh, The Lord says that one day he's going to raise up a prophet like Moses and that the people of God are to listen to him. And in Psalm 110, we're told that the Messiah would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And in Psalms, like Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 and, and many other passages in the Old Testament, we're told that the Messiah would be the son of David, a great king who would rule over God's people And rule over the nations of the earth forever. And so that the Messiah would be all of these things. The great prophet, priest, and king. And Peter has just confessed, Jesus, that's you. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him, does he? Jesus acknowledges that Peter is giving the right answer by not rebuking him. You you would think at this time, okay, it's time to break out the the wine and celebrate. The Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah has, has finally come. He is here in the person of Jesus. Let's, let's get the word out. Let's start spreading this message around the region so that everyone knows the Messiah is here. But that's not what Jesus tells them to do, is it? Instead, he, he charges them, he commands them, not to tell anyone who he was 
And then he began to teach them that he must suffer and die. Talk about taking the wind out of your sails. Now, entire books have been written on this question of why did Jesus tell his disciples to not tell anyone about his identity as the Messiah? In fact, there's a name for it. People call it the messianic secret. People give all kinds of reasons. Now, I actually think the reason is fairly obvious as we think about this passage. After, after all, these are his closest followers and they were just beginning to understand more clearly who Jesus was and what exactly he had come to do and the order in which he would do it. Even, even their expectations about the Messiah needed to be reshaped and conformed to the whole counsel of God. Perhaps they, they love to go to passages like Psalm 2 that talked about the Lord's anointed one you know, ruling over the kings of the world. But they had not fully factored in passages like Isaiah 53 about the Lord's suffering servant who would be crushed and put to death. And so the Lord Jesus wants them to better understand the identity of the Messiah. And you can imagine then if, what, it, what would have happened if the disciples had gone about proclaiming Jesus is the Christ when people's primary way of thinking about the Messiah was that he was, a, he was a military leader who would come in might and crush the Roman Empire. Well, that would have been a total distortion of Jesus' ministry and it would have entirely missed the point. And so Jesus wants his disciples to first of all understand the mission of the Messiah. You see, as I just said, the disciples were not at least they were not expecting the Messiah to also be a suffering servant. They, they were not expecting to follow a Messiah who would be humiliated. And that's why Peter is so offended. You remember in Matthew's account of this that after Jesus declares that he must suffer and die, Peter Peter has the audacity to take Jesus aside and rebuke him and say, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Oh, but you see, Jesus, Jesus did not come to meet our faulty expectations. And praise God for that. He came to do the Father's will. And that required him to know the deepest suffering and to go to Calvary. And to die in the place of his people. To know humiliation before exaltation. To know the cross before the crown. And so Jesus wanted them to understand that the true Messiah is also a suffering servant. That he had to go to Jerusalem to suffer, die, and rise again. Because it is the only way for God's people to be saved. And so I want to come back to this question that Jesus asks his disciples. It's really, it's a great question. You know, Jesus doesn't, uh, he doesn't ask indirect questions here. He gets right to the point. Wouldn't this be a great question after, after the service? Maybe, maybe as a family sitting around the table later today. Talk over this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
Friends, that, that is the most important question because it is about the most important person in the world. And, and how you answer that question is literally a matter of eternity. And I hope, I hope that you can say with joy in your heart that Jesus is the Christ. He is the prophet and priest and king that I need. And not just that he suffered and died and rose again, but that he suffered and died and rose again for me. He died in my place and he rose again for my justification. But you see, if that's your confession, you're also confessing something about yourself. You are acknowledging my sin is so so wrong, so wretched, so, so vile that it required the Son of God to be crucified upon a tree and to be cursed in my place. Oh, but my friends, do you see that because of what Christ has done, you can, you can confess your sin and, and you need not hang your head in despair Because you can say, my sin is indeed great, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ is even greater. And so we see here the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. And I want us to think thirdly here about the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ. And why that is such good news. I don't know how you want to write that down in your notes. But that's what we're going to think about for a moment. Why why is it that in our assurance of pardon this morning, Paul could say, I proclaim the gospel to you. What was the content of that gospel? Jesus died. And Jesus rose again. Why why is that such good news? Well, think about this with me. He, He had to suffer. He, he, he must suffer not only the miseries of this life, which he did, but, but suffer the humiliation of, of false accusations and the misery of the cross. Why? Because he, he, he had to be a man despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, thoroughly acquainted with grief. He had to, to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. He had to in order to be our sympathetic savior and in order to make a way for us into a world free of suffering. So he had to suffer. His, when you read the Gospels, his, his whole life story is a story of suffering that culminates in his own people rejecting him. His disciples abandoning him in the hour of his greatest need, his being flogged near to the point of death, and most of all, his being cursed by God as he bore in his own body the penalty of the sins of of his people. There was no other way to save us. And, And think about this for a minute with me. What if we had a Savior who knew nothing of suffering? You know, what if we had a savior like the the kind of Messiah that some of the people were expecting? Just this this mighty conquering king who comes in glory, but knows nothing of your suffering, your pain, 
your loss. Well, then we would, that would mean we have a Jesus who is not made like us in every way except for sin. It would mean Jesus is unable to sympathize with you in your suffering and grief. And it would mean he knows nothing of the suffering and trials and pain of living in a fallen world. But my friends, that's not the Christ that you and I have, is it? No, the, the Jesus that, that we follow, the Christ of, of the gospel, is a sympathetic high priest who is able to sympathize with you in your suffering and your loss and your grief and your pain because he has been there. And because he has known greater suffering and greater loss than you or I ever will. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. And so you see, because our Lord suffered, you, you can go to Christ and know he is not, he is not removed. He's not aloof. He's not cold. He's not distant. But rather, you can go to him and you can know that he cares for you. And because Jesus suffered, we have a sympathetic high priest and we have a Christ who has made a way for us into a world free of suffering. But not only that, Jesus must die. He must die. He, he is not only a suffering servant, he is also our substitute. You understand that the death of Jesus is not a bare fact of history. It, it had significance. Jesus died in our place. Our, our catechism asks the question, what does every sin deserve? And you know the answer, every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. What does Paul say that the wages of sin are? The wages of sin is, is death. And so sin deserves the wrath and curse of God and sin merits uh, Eternal death and separation from God. And Jesus had to die because Jesus died for us. And everything our sin deserved, Jesus himself received. He was nailed to that cursed tree. He himself bore the curse of the covenant. He drank the cup of, of God's wrath. He experienced separation from God. You know what Jesus cried out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me from Psalm 22? But of course, Jesus didn't merely offer those words up in prayer because he felt forsaken. Jesus prayed that, dear friends, because he was forsaken. Our Jesus who... Our Lord, who knew the smile of his heavenly Father's face from all eternity upon Golgotha, the face of the Father's, was turned away from him. As the wrath of Almighty God was poured out upon him, and as Luther teaches us, he was treated as the worst sinner who ever lived. Why? Because he died for us. Because he carried our sins, all of our sins, to the cross and received in himself the due reward. And so he died for the ungodly, we're told. 
He was cut off from the land of the living and stricken for the transgressions of his people. He died so that his people might be saved. And he had to. (laughs) Because think with me for a minute. What, What if Christ had not died on the cross? Well, that would mean that without the death of Christ, God's wrath would still remain unsatisfied. Without the death of Christ, there would be a no, no atonement for sin. Without the death of Christ, we would remain in our sins without hope in this world. And without the death of Christ, the wrath of God would remain over us like a, like a dark storm cloud ready to break. My friends, this is what we need to understand. No death of Christ, no substitute, no forgiveness, no peace with God, no freedom from guilt. He had to die on the cross so that we might be blessed through him. He had to suffer, he had to die, and he had to be raised. Oh, dear friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it changes everything. Uh, Paul celebrates this, doesn't he? That death, death could not hold him. That Death has been swallowed up in victory. And because Christ has been raised, we can know that those who trust in him have been saved, are being saved, and in the last day will eternally be saved. How can we know that? Because, dear friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof positive that the Heavenly Father accepted the sacrifice of His Son in our place. And so you ask yourself the question, how how can I know? How can I know that I'm justified? How can I know that my sins are forgiven and that I am accepted by God? Well, one of the things we can do, dear friends, is to look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ testifies to the reality that the Father has accepted the sacrifice of His Son. As Paul will say in Romans 1, that Jesus Christ was raised in power. And as he'll say in 1 Timothy, he was vindicated. He was justified by the Spirit in his resurrection as the sinless Son of God who has made atonement for his people. But not only only does the resurrection prove to us that the Heavenly Father accepts the sacrifice of his Son in our place. But I hope you also understand this. That the resurrection of Jesus, it is literally, and I don't use that word often, but it literally is the dawning of a new age. It is the beginning of a new world. This present evil age is characterized by sin and death and decay, and by his resurrection, Jesus Christ has inaugurated a new age where there is no more sin, no more death, and no more decay. And because Jesus Christ has been raised, my friends, he has opened up a way of access into that world, a world where there will be no more funerals. A world where you will never again read an obituary. 
a, a world where you will never again have to witness the awful sight of loved ones mourning beside a casket and a graveside. Because Jesus Christ has been raised. You will never suffer loss because of the resurrection of Christ. I love that, I love that title from John Owen, and you've heard me use it before, that death is dead in the death of Christ. That the death of Christ destroyed the power of death and it flung open the doors to eternal resurrection, life, and fellowship with God. And so we need to understand this today, that the resurrection of Christ, it it proves to us that the Father has accepted the sacrifice of His Son in our place and that the resurrection of Christ has, has begun a new world altogether that one day will be fully realized when Jesus returns. So think for a moment with me, where would we be then if Christ had not been raised? What's Paul say? Well, we would be above all people most to be pitied because our faith, it would be in vain. But more than that, without the resurrection, there would be no freedom from the bondage and and guilt of sin. And without the resurrection, we would, be, we would still be slaves to the fear of death. Without the resurrection, there would be no victory over death. No hope for eternal life and fellowship with God. But instead, all we would have is the prospect of certain death. And because Christ, though, because he has been raised. Do you remember... Our, our call to worship this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Christ. Because God has worked in our lives and because Jesus Christ has been raised, dear friends, we can have We can have real substantial hope. Not hope in the sense that people often use the word of wishful thinking. Hope in the biblical sense of a firm confidence that because Christ has been raised. And because I am united to him that I too will be raised and be with him for all eternity. So we can know we have this hope, this confidence that Christ's sacrifice has saved us. And his resurrection has made a way for us into eternal life and fellowship with God. And so, dear friends, I hope you see this is why the cross was necessary. Only by the suffering of Christ can we have peace. Only by the death of Christ can we have forgiveness with God. And only by the resurrection of Christ can we have eternal life. This is why Jesus came to be the Christ who suffered and died and rose again for the salvation of all who trust in him. And so you see that the the, the cross of Jesus Christ, it is center, central to Christ's saving work. But I also want us to just think briefly about what, what, what does this mean applied to our lives? Because the cross is not only central to the, to the gospel, but dear friends, the cross should also be central 
in our relationships with one another. You know, maybe maybe uh, you're, you're here today and, and you can look around. Maybe even here in this building, there are fellow Christians that you, you disagree with, you're in conflict with, maybe you don't even like. Oh, but the cross changes things, doesn't it? Because the cross reminds us that the Lord Jesus has united us together by the shedding of his very own blood. And the cross reminds us that each and every one of us stand in the same need of God's saving grace. And the cross reminds us that when we look at a brother and sister in Christ, we are looking at a blood-bought purchase that Jesus loved enough to lay down his very own life. And so the cross of the Lord Jesus, it ought to define our relationships with one another, and it certainly ought to define our ministry as a church, shouldn't it? Can we, can we together make this, make this our prayer and our, our renewed commitment today? That in all that we do, we would, we would lift high the cross of Christ. That in every, every sermon, in every Bible study, in every Sunday school class, in every discussion, in every counseling session, in all that we do, we would make the cross of Christ central. And then the final thing, I want to come back to this. Because above all, the cross defines our relationship with God. The cross defines your relationship with God. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do, do you know Christ crucified and, and raised. Have, have you gone to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, dear friends? If, if you haven't, I, I want to urge you today to, to go to Christ because without Christ and his cross, there is no life, there is no salvation, there is no eternal joy, but with Christ, there is eternal joy and eternal salvation, and eternal fellowship with God. And God invites each and every one of us today to go to Calvary and there find everything we need, both for this life and the life to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your abundant provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we think about this passage, we see that Jesus really is everything we need because he suffered and died and rose again from the dead. We can have uh, salvation. We can be set free from the guilt and bondage of sin and we can have eternal life and fellowship with you. And I pray that today all of us would know Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's in his name I pray. Amen.